of how is God's word God's word? Which is the question of inspiration. And I think that really is... This thing's broken, but I'll see if it'll work anyway. That really is what determines whether we view the scriptures as binding or in the kind of pejorative words of Mr. McLaren, uh, a constitution or whether we view them as simply a library for us to go in and check out the books we're interested in and read the passages that say what we want them to say. Um, What does it mean for God's word to be inspired? Men writing it down were directed by God to do so. I think that's a good start. The Holy Spirit um, almost took their hand and wrote the words that God wanted. Okay. Well, let's let's start talking about some different terms here. Then, what did you say, Beth? That men wrote down the books with God's direction. Okay, God's direction. The end there, Mimi said God breathed, which is from the Greek theonousis, which means God breathed um, or uh, blah, 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 inspired. That's translated inspired in most cases in your English Bible. But then she also said God took their hand. Actually, she said almost. Somebody uh, sussed that out. Is, is, is it a case that when someone sat down to write what would become scripture, that it was essentially like dictation? The words came, they wrote down exactly those words, and then later on they were put in the Bible, and now we have them. Aaron. Um, but can't remember exactly how you phrased the question, though. I said, did God uh, dictate to the authors of the human authors of Scripture exactly what words to write? He probably did not always. I think that when it's when you're talking about a prophet, that it seems like yes, he's saying, "Thus saith the Lord, God said this." Um, but Paul says, uh, "I say this, not the Lord," in one of his letters, saying, "This is my opinion." Mm-hmm. So you might have a case where. People were writing down things faithfully, um, and what got preserved was what is correct. That's a question mark. All right. He said preserve. Certainly, as Aaron just mentioned, there are some elements of Scripture, some, some portions of Scripture that were dictated, right? In fact, God didn't even take over Moses' pen initially for the Ten Commandments. He was like, get out of the way. And he wrote them with his very own finger, right? So that's God's words given to us directly. And as you mentioned, somebody did with prophets. Uh, We have, thus saith the Lord, right? Or an oracle, a neum from the Lord. This is in quotes, as we would use them, God's words. And now we have, or, or for example, also the finger writing, right? Um, the writing on the wall, right? No one got up and said, I feel like writing this. God might be breathing and inspiring me. 
I'm going to write mini, mini, tickle, whatever, whatever on the wall. No, a hand appears and writes it on the wall. So there are some cases where what we have in God's word is simply God's words. There is a, a number. I mean, we might even say um, the law throughout the books of the law. That's essentially dictated. Think, think about this. It's really slogging through to read Leviticus. Imagine sitting down and God's like, all right, we got like seven more that are about pus and, you know, white hairs coming out of your skin. And then we're moving on. to That's definitely the minority of God's word is that it is, is raw God's words given. You write this down. Another example would be in Revelation uh, two and three, right? This is classic dictation. John, I know you're freaking out because you haven't seen me in a long time and because my feet are like burnished bronze, etc., etc. but take a letter. I've got, take seven of them. I've got stuff to say. And, and then, of course, the words of Christ. I'm not a huge fan of a red letter edition because I think it, it implies that these words are somehow more God's word, which as we talk about inspiration more, you'll see that's not the case, um, than, than say the words of, of Paul in his letters. But... It is a reminder that these are uncut. I mean, this is just straight what God says. Because Jesus, this is pretty basic Christian doctrine. We haven't got to it yet, but I know you know it, is God. Spoiler alert. And so when he speaks, this is the words of the Father. And they're not interpreted by someone. They're not, uh, there's not just preservation uh, uh, and in keeping from error. There's actually an active opening of the mouth, the divine mouth, and here's what God says. So there are certainly cases, but I would definitely feel comfortable saying this is a minority within God's, probably a small minority. Uh, there are many, many other things in scripture that are not just here's God's words and yet are still God's word and still inspired and still, as we read in First uh, Timothy 3.16, useful for uh, all of these things, uh, God breathed and useful for teaching and rebuke and training in righteousness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what, what are some other things that we might find in the scriptures that are, yeah, um, just descriptions of what people did. Right. Now, when you read the four gospels, is it easy if I just throw you um, a, a passage without telling you who wrote it to know which of the evangelists wrote it down? Sometimes. In what cases is it easy? If it's John. Yeah, it's usually If it's John, right, because he doesn't seem to have the same source material as the others. Instead of verse, maybe not, but, oh. What, what, what sets Luke apart? Um, because sometimes it's a little more medical. Technical terminology, yeah, absolutely. Because he's a physician uh, and... Certainly, Luke has his favorite words. Anyone know what Luke's favorite word is? Euthus and day. Euthus means immediately, all the time. Everything's done immediately. I wish, very efficient gospel. Um, immediately this happened, immediately this happened. And the day, D-E-I, it means it is necessary. And that is again and again through Luke and then into Acts. It's necessary that this happen. It's necessary that this happen. Why? Because God has said beforehand that it will happen. And you don't really see those words when you're reading Mark. 
when you're reading John, what don't you see that you see in the others, the synoptics? The kingdom mentioned much. Not much kingdom. That's, that's right. Well, you see, very, you see different things because he was just purposefully writing things that hadn't been written before, it seems like. You see things in John that you don't see in the other. Okay, so there's different accounts, but I'm thinking more of the way how he, how he writes, not what he writes. Does he have a lot of these punchy statements? The kingdom of God is like one, one statement parable or many parables at all? No. He does have a lot of discourses, though. Mm-hmm. Each of his miracles seems to be in between one of those discourses. Right. So, he, so even the organization of these things. Luke seems to be more, if not chronological, basically chronologically, sequentially writing. Uh, Matthew's tying things together under theme headings. I, I, I dislike that sometimes when I'm reading a biography and they're like, I'm not going to start with his birth and end with his death. I'm going to talk about, you know, Abe Lincoln, the, you know, old camera enthusiast and Abe Lincoln, the gamer. And Abe, and, but, you know, that's kind of what Matthew does. Uh, he's, he's building these things in thematic uh, units and, and then giving us a non like like a Tarantino kind of view of the life of Jesus. Plus, if you see something like, for it was written, they should do this, or see a quote of a Bible verse in the gospel, it's probably Matthew. Because he's writing to the Jews. Mm-hmm. Mark doesn't quote as much from the Old Testament because he's not writing. So they have different purposes as well. Yeah, so I mean, we can, we can tell them apart. And even, I mean, one, one author could write with different purposes. One, one guy could even write... The gospel for the Jews, the gospel for the Gentiles, the gospel, you know, for the modern man, whatever. But when you read these things, you see the favorite constructs. And I, I'll tell you, when you, when you start reading them in Greek, you see them even more. Because when you read your English translation, a style committee went through and kind of made everything feel the same. To give it a cohesive feel to this Bible, which I guess has some plus side. But the fact that it is... Even using McLaren's word, a library of many different books written by different people. Maybe we ought to let them have different styles. Maybe maybe each book or each author should have a committee that says, this is what Paul's going to sound like, trying to capture that Pauline seven-mile-long sentence vibe. Um, hold on a second. So, so there are definitely personalities and styles worked into this. If you read the letters that were dictated by uh, the CEO of Dow Chemical in the 1980s to his secretary, at the bottom of every letter, right, you've got her initials. And other than that, if those initials were whited out, this is an old-timey little illustration, um, would you know which secretary had taken these letters? No. It, was, it was Sheila. It wasn't Janice. Why are they all women? Because it was the 80s. Come on. Um, <laughs> No, you wouldn't, because they're just so, so dictation doesn't preserve personality and vocabulary and style, and yet we find those things. I mean, I used to be a hardcore proponent that St. Paul wrote the Epistle to the Hebrews, mostly because it was just a good way to get a rise out of people. Um, I'm not 100% sure that he didn't, but when I was... I'd been here a few years, actually. I started taking, um, I took a Greek refresher course with my friend Andy Smith, who's now an ABC pastor. We yoinked him from the garb. 
And uh, he, I mean, brilliant guy. I was the only student and I was uh, auditing. So there were no real students in the class. It was, it was awesome, it was just one-on-one. And, and he pushed me to, to remember my Greek and go further. And uh, at one point, he had me, he, he had me in, uh, I think, First Thessalonians. And that's a pretty easy one. That's a lot of times early Greek students will start translating in First Thessalonians. It's a good way to kind of wet your, your appetite and wet your feet. And uh, he said, yeah, enjoy this because tomorrow we're in Hebrews. And he gave me a section from Hebrews. And all of a sudden I was like, whoa, this is like going from C-spot run to like a medical textbook. I mean, it was, it was so different. And I said, this is, if this is the same guy, he's intentionally writing in a very different way. Maybe it was because Paul, you know, was someone who knew how to talk to the Greeks, knew how to talk to the Jews. Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians, maybe, but you see these vast differences in style and vocabulary. You can make up word maps of uh, Peter versus John versus Matthew, what, what words they like to use. And you can, you can be quite certain that these books have a common author. Uh, it's as simple as that. And so we don't want to suggest dictation. Uh, again, a few scenarios within Scripture where God's Word is simply God's words dictated and then written down. But that's not the whole of it. I remember th- that's what I thought for much of my life because we were always just told God, God told people what to write. And in a sense, that's true. But when it's the Holy Spirit, it's a lot messier, right? So what, is, what else is there? We got the word preserved here. Um, we got breathed. God breathed. So God's inspiring. He's preserving. What else might there be? Providence. Okay, you mentioned providence. Aaron? So the God breathed thing is interesting because you think about God breathing into Adam and making him a living soul. But he didn't then become a robot and do whatever mm. God wanted. He had his own will and his own ideas and did what he wanted. Which at first was what God wanted. Right. But it wasn't always. Okay. So that's an interesting connection. So I in this case, the will of man as they write, at least insofar as these canonical books are concerned, was kept in line with the will of God. And of course, these are people who are free to write what they want, but they're also filled with the Holy Spirit and being sanctified. And so you just said something important. What'd you say? You said kept from error. error. (laughs) So there's a, there's a positive and a negative element here to inspiration. The positive is, um, the inspiration. I mean, whenever the Holy Spirit fills someone nine times out of 10, what do we see in scripture? What is the outcome? Yeah. Speaking it's words. It's once in a while, it's killing a lot of people, but that's rare, right? In the Old Testament, it's speaking in some way. Actually, Samson could have just used his words, but instead he was like, ah, kill. I'm, I'm kidding. That's probably the last one. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's words, right? So filled with the Holy Spirit and they're given the words to write. And then in the writing, kept from error, um, the truth is... They're, 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 they're given not maybe exactly the words to write, but they know what God wants them to address. Or there's maybe a more passive way to view this. We know Paul wrote at least one more letter to the Corinthians, right? Maybe Paul wrote six letters to the Corinthians. 
And God just in his providence preserved those two which were without error and addressed those things. That to me seems, I don't know, unnecessarily complicated. Like God's up here waiting, like, come on, write the one that I want you to write. Exactly. Uh, and these things are long. So, I mean, it would, how many monkeys at a typewriter tell you have Hamlet? Uh, it, it seems God is actively involved. So it's not a case of, okay, now write the, okay, now write church, okay, now write in, now write Corinth, but rather um, this sort of seamless welling up, like when uh, Stephen stood up before the Sanhedrin and he hadn't prepared anything beforehand. He didn't worry about what he was going to say. He just opened his mouth and the Holy Spirit was like, here we go. And when that happens, you're not losing control so much as you're sharing control. I mean, you're, 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 you're given the advantage of the spirit within you, but your personality remains. When people make a great uh, presentation of the gospel and they say, wow, I look back at that and that was the Holy Spirit. That wasn't me. The way they know that was the case isn't because their language suddenly went King James, right? And, they, and it's, it didn't sound like me at all. Um, Perhaps with the speaking in tongues, that's the case. You know, but that was Spanish. I didn't know Spanish. But, but uh, for the most part, it's, it's like this welling up within. It's, it's a, a breathing of God. And remember, the word breathe, breath, breath, spirit, same word. Theamnustas, pneuma, spirit. So there's a connection here between breath and spirit. And the Holy Spirit breathing into these authors uh, and it comes out with them still there. And I think that gives us great hope, right? Because in order for him to give us his word and his truth, he didn't have to wipe away everything that was Paul. Even though Paul, <laughs> Paul could be a jerk, right? James could be a jerk. You read some of the things, you know, some of the squabbles and stuff. But he didn't have to override him entirely because he was already working in him. And, and it tells us that we as sinful people, can be conduits of God's truth as well. That's the very fact that God's word is inspired gives us hope for our... Second uh, Peter 121. Second um, Thessalonians 2, 13 to 15. And then Luke 1, 3 to 4. Let's hear it. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty good little definition of inspiration, I think, right there. No prophecy ever came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This tells us maybe even, not oracles, but some of the prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, you read Elijah's prophecies, and they have a little different edge to them than Jeremiah's, right? Jeremiah's are sad. Elijah's are angry, right? Um, th th these, these men, even their personalities, uh, God chose the man and brought up the man fit for the occasion. Uh, and, and so what was going on was they were carried along. Uh, is, is that the uh, ESV? Or, uh, or I think the NIV says they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Carried along is great. I mean, you get the sense then they're in a life raft or something and, and water rises up and they've got no choice. They're going in this direction. 
But as they go, they're still Elijah or Jeremiah. And I think that's a good metaphor as well for, uh, for the, the scriptures. And of course, there are also instances of, here's an oracle, thus saith the Lord, colon, don't mess with this. Um, and that we find in scripture as well. So why, why is it written down? I mean, there are plenty of ways that God could show us his will and ways that he does show us his will uh, throughout the scriptures. There's the Urim and the Thummim. Remember those? Remember the Urim and the Thummim? Mm-hmm. Keep them in the uh, ephod. Yes. You guys have Urim and Thummim in your ephods, right? Yeah, we have, yeah. <laughs> yes, we, yes, we do. We're not quite sure exactly what they were other than that they were... I don't know, it seems like they were almost used like dice or a coin flip or who knows. Uh, they were things used to divine God's will. Um, we had prophets who were as needed, given messages to go, almost like living scripture. Uh, these people need to hear this. Uh, go and tell them this. Uh, we have the words of Jesus as he went around in his ministry. And certainly Jesus said an awful lot more than what we have written down Um, In fact, if everything he said and did was written down, all the books in the world would not contain them. Uh, We have this whole corpus of Jesus tradition referenced in the the letters of the apostles. And then, of course, we have uh, the letters of the apostles that are written. Why, Why is the final form of this written? Why is that so important? Um. But some of it has to do with just making it easier to um, share the gospel in different places and different times. Okay. Because if you don't have it written down, the, you have more opportunity to in, like insert other things into a mm-hmm. vocal presentation that may not be part of God's word. Whereas if you have something written down, you can always compare what you're hearing to that. It didn't stop people from... In, interpolating little things into the written word. But yeah, it, it's like playing telephone, right? I mean, you, you stories morph and change very quickly when they're shared orally um, versus when they're written down. There's also the, the fact that although we had many eyewitnesses to these things written in the Gospels, what happens to eyewitnesses? They die. <laughs> they die. Uh, so they're not around to tell. And so as they're about to die, seems to be when a lot of them were like, maybe I should write some of these things. I've had many times I've been visiting with, and this is an awkward thing to say, but you're talking to an older member, maybe a homebound member of the church, and they're just telling you these fascinating stories. And you say, did you ever write these down? Not that you're going to die soon, but yeah, write them down because they're awesome stories and they deserve to be remembered and, and, and yeah, passed like, on. Like old pictures and nobody knows who anybody is because nobody wrote who they were on the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's kind of common sense, the question I'm asking. <laughs> so they'll know. Well, I think uh, like in the early church, so in the New Testament times, you know, initially you had the apostles and you had that apostolic authority. But eventually, um, again, they died as well. And uh, so um, I think it was important to, to write down, have that stuff written down, because you're not going to always have the apostles with it. So, I mean, the same sort of thing. But, I mean, in, in the Old Testament, you, had, you would have a prophet for a certain period of time that, that God would appoint, but uh, then, then they're going to die as well. So, um, it, you know. God, um, God in his sovereignty made sure that all of this stuff was preserved. 
for us today. Certainly, yeah. That's yeah, and and the vocal speaking of God's word uh, continues to be an ordained means for sharing the gospel, but you have this standard. So, you, you know, Galatians 1, you're not at liberty to start twisting it and messing with it. If we didn't have something written down that said this is what the gospel is, chapter and verse, I mean, even with that, we, we see today people claiming all sorts of wonky stuff is the gospel. Uh, licentiousness and, you know, license to do wickedness, that's the gospel. That's been very popular this week. Um, yeah, whatever you do is holy because you're a Christian, so sin's holy. Uh, or um, maybe uh, you, you should be rich and happy and, and as handsome as Alex, but uh, no, that's not the gospel. When you had the Counter-Reformation uh, with, uh, from the Catholic Church, you know, one of the things they talked about was that, you know, well, the, the, the word of the Pope or mm-hmm. the word of the Church was an equal footing with, with Scripture. Yeah. So, so you have the, the, the written word and we believe it to be our, our only authority in, in, in life and practice. And, and, uh, uh, and in spite of that, you still have some who would attempt to bring man's wisdom and equate that with the, the, the scripture. But, you know, the, the fact that it's God breathed and we have that written, written word, uh, and you wouldn't have that kind of record if, if it was passed on from, from generation to generation because you still have to this day with people trying to, like you're saying, add mm-hmm. or bring man's, man's uh, opinion uh, into it and make it equal to or, or greater than... Uh, when you say we had the apostles and they died, had they said, I'm about to die, tag, or here's the baton, you go, and there had been this Petrine succession this line of authoritative people, then the written word wouldn't be as important. And to those traditions, it's not quite as important as it is to us when we say sola scriptura. Actually, Christians and regenerate and godly, right? Well, even if they were, they have to also be inspired. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. You, there are some pretty nasty people in that line. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Yeah, and so it, the, the wickedness of men is always going to be you know, from the very first generation of Christians, threatening to taint the, the gospel. Uh, and so the, the scriptures being laid down as this is authoritative, that's central to what we understand as Orthodox Christianity. Without it, I mean, we're going to drift in any different direction. We're going to be blown this way and that by any new doctrine. It almost seems like that's a phrase from the scriptures itself. So, yeah, we, we, we've got to have it written down to save us from what we would do uh, to the truth. Because even as regenerate people, we always will have the flesh to contend with. And if you put this truth in my hands and say, keep this safe and pass it on unscathed to the next generation, within a few generations, this will be unrecognizable. Uh, And, you know, honestly, it's not just, we don't want to pick on the Roman Catholic Church alone. The notion of scripture and tradition, it's, it's, Prevalent. I mean, uh, not just the, also the Greek church, the, the, the Eastern Orthodox church, but also uh, in the Anglican tradition, they have this three-legged stool of scripture, tradition, and reason. You have the Wesleyan quadrilateral. It's a distinctive of, of Reformation churches to say, no, we're just going to look to the scripture alone as the final authority and not add into it oral tradition, 
my own reasonings about, well, maybe this doesn't apply anymore. So it shouldn't surprise us when we see these things kind of drifting. Yeah. And if you look back in the book of Colossians, you realize they had this problem back then too with the traditions of men, oral traditions. Mm-hmm. Well, and even if you have a church that says that they only take the Bible as their authority, I hear weekly, well, you know, I was always taught this way. Or, mm-hmm. I, you know, well, I was always taught that this is bad or that is bad. Or I just don't feel like God would do this. You still have that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I believe in the Bible. But, yeah, I don't, I, I think God would be more like me right. than like what the Bible says he's about. Now, granted, tradition's not the bad guy. That, that kind of undergirds this whole study, right? What sets apart something like what we're studying, the Baptist Confession, or any of the other great confessions or catechisms is that they are not saying, this is in addition to scripture, they're saying this is built on the lattice of scripture. And if you find that scripture isn't undergirding these things, especially with a confession, you're not only free, but obligated to start pulling things away and seeing what's you know standing at the end of the day. Uh, and, and a good document like this, a good tradition, a good uh, set of doctrines handed down generation to generation will invite that because it will have confidence. The, the people who, who laid it down and have taught it and learned it over the, the years and centuries will have confidence that it can withstand that kind of thing. And the process of inspecting the undergirding of Scripture under these confessions is... That's the most beneficial thing. Uh, that's the way to learn them, right? Is, is to take them apart and see how they work uh, and if they work. And it's okay if in a couple of places you look at this document or the confession and go, hmm, I don't know. I, there might be a leap there. I mean, you're less Baptist than me if that's the case, but you're not less of a Christian. You may be more of a Christian. You may be more Berean. Um, so who's got 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 15 in front of them? 13, 15. Yeah. It says, But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. So there is certainly a passing down of information. And again, paradidomi is the Greek word there. And the noun is paradosis, which is always translated tradition when it's negative and often translated something like things handed down when it's positive and that colors our view of tradition. But there is something, a standard to be held to. Did anyone open to Luke 1? Uh, please read 3 and 4 for us. It seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, uh, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So we see there are two things that are important. One, Luke didn't sit down with his pen and his parchment and go, all right, God, uh, automatic writing. Did you ever have a friend in high school who was like into that automatic writing from the dead? Remember that? He showed me a letter one time. I, wrote, I just closed my eyes and wrote. And I was like, really? It says it's from a 15th century knight. Interesting. Um, weird duck. Good guy. 
but that's not how Luke wrote. He set about, he interviewed, he, he researched. And this is back before research could be done just Googling. I mean, he's out there with Paul, traveling, talking to people. Imagine the ship goes down and he's like, ah, oh, my notes! Ah, and they're getting heavy waterlogged. I mean, this, this was hard work. So we know that inspiration was at work in that process. We also see here one of the reasons why the scriptures were written down to begin with. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And that's what the written word does for us. So yeah, maybe you were always taught that X. But to have certainty, find that for me in the Bible. Don't just defend what you've always been fed. And there's something to be said for... Um, confidence in, in what we've been taught, but absolutely just giving oneself over to whatever tradition you happen to have been born into is probably more fideism, lifting up and worshiping faith, than biblical faith. All right, Proverbs 22, 20 and 21. Proverbs 22, colon, 20 and 21. Have I not written 30 sayings for you, sayings of counsel and knowledge, teaching you true and reliable words so that you can give sound answers to him who sent you? We have plenty of reason there for writing down true sayings so you'll have them. So we'll have them if we we hadn't, we'll have them. Um, Reliable and true words so that you may give sound answers. Another function of the scriptures, right? If you didn't have the scriptures, you'd be left to your own uh, machinations when trying to proclaim the gospel or give an answer for the hope that you have within. We've got the word of God, and that's much more useful than whatever I might come up with in the moment. We also have the Holy Spirit, but it's interesting how often the two work together. I find that when the Holy Spirit prompts me, it's usually with scripture, and that seems to be the case with Jesus as well. Uh, when he's facing temptation, he doesn't get a new word. He gets an old word and it does the trick quite well. John 2, or rather John 20, 30 to 31, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So these things being written down are incredibly helpful to us uh, in sorting out what to believe and in finding eternal life. Uh, The means of uh, this effectual faith then uh, is the reading and especially the preaching of God's Word, capital W, the Scriptures. It's not what saves us. It's not that the Bible crawled up on a cross and bled for us. It's that Jesus did and The Bible is the means by which that message comes to us. And so we do want to hold it up. We just want to make sure we don't hold it up equal with Christ. Jesus is the word made flesh. These are, this is the word uh, about the word. Let me read for you from, yes, sir. That was actually going through my head when you just said it. What, What does that mean to us? Jesus is the word made flesh. Because it seems like that's part of the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what we want to bear in mind is that the word, word, 
sound like Bill Clinton up here. Um, the word word in the uh, context there. So does anyone know the Greek? Icon. No, that's image. Oh, Wait, somebody. Starts with L. Logos. Logos. Or if you're speaking in classical Greek, logos. Um, that, that word, it, it's got a lot of baggage in that moment. Um, to begin with, its semantic domain is word or thing or matter or idea. And in Greek philosophy, the logos is kind of this principle. Um, Aaron, you may even be able to <laughs> suss this out as well as I or better. Um, the notion of the logos being the ultimate goal of discovering kind of these, the principle that, that kind of um, holds everything together or reveals the matrix code to you, you know. And, and so this is kind of being sought, you know, this one, this one thing. And when John comes in and says, in the beginning was the logos, and God was the logos, and the logos was God. Um, God was with the logos, and logos was God. It, it's saying this thing that the Greeks are searching for in their philosophy uh, that the Pharisees may be searching the scriptures for, but, but not finding. It's a, a man now. Uh, and, and this is God the Son, come the, the, the second person of the Trinity that reveals to us the, the Father. The God, the unknown God. Sure, yeah. In that thing that... At the same time, I think it is a bit of a play on words because the word is so central to Christianity. The word being... The word revealed, the inspired word, God's word. Uh, and so we don't have just dead pages. We have the word become flesh. And we don't just say, okay, well, uh, in Second Hesitations chapter 3, and have just the, this, this dry combination collection of, of words and characters. We have a living, breathing man who came and showed us God. You've seen me, you've seen him. So in a sense, he's the word, the message about who God is alive for us. Uh, we don't want to then maybe conflate God's word and the word made flesh as if that's the exact same thing. You know, the written, this is the written word. The scriptures are, or the, the sacraments are the word tasted and beheld. And Jesus is the word walking around as if it's three aspects of the same thing, but maybe the same function. It, 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 all that to say, it's, that's a super complicated question. And dissertations have been written ad nauseum about what exactly that means when John says the word made flesh. And I'm not the guy to suss it out completely for you. What about in reference to this answer question too? Is, is there some overlap in the name? The Word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, is the only rule to direct us. No, I, I, I would read this. There just means the text. Yeah, that's how I read it. Does anyone, I mean, perhaps, perhaps anytime we talk about the Word of God, um, we're privileged above any other religion to say that's not just a bunch of ideas on paper or chiseled into rock, but for us, an actual living God who came and showed us God. But yeah, it, it seems to me they're not, they're not making a play on words. It, you got to realize the cleverness, not the Westminster divines uh, identifying uh, 
characteristic. Yeah, no, uh, stodginess maybe, uh, accuracy, um, and uh, you know, old-timey language, but but not cleverness. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the big W, I think, is because the words of God, you might even put the W lowercase, but the word of God is, that's a title, a, a real title. Uh, Jonathan. Yeah, and it kind of related to that, and I was just kind of thinking about um, maybe it's beyond the scope of this particular question of confession, but the, uh, just the idea of special revelation versus like general revelation. And so God can reveal, you know, Romans 1 talks about this, God, God can reveal himself in nature and things like that in a way of general revelation, but that's not in a way that would lead to salvation. You're doing fine, but can I do a better job by reading the uh, <laughs> chapter 1 of the Holy Scriptures from the Baptist Confession? It says the same thing. Better than you or I. The Holy Scriptures, this is, this is not answer to a question, this is a confession. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, again, that's Romans 1, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare his will unto his church. And afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruptions of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the holy scriptures to be most necessary those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. And there are a big, <laughs> me too, man, big collection of proof texts there at the bottom. Um, maybe the, we got just a few minutes here. It, it might be an interesting question to leave with. Does that little paragraph, paragraph one of the, of chapter one of the, Baptist Confession of Faith shut the door on the idea that there might be um, continued prophecy. Is this a hard cessationist document? Well, they say these former ways having ceased, um, the former ways of God's authoritative word coming to his people, it used to be, I mean, this is basic Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, right? In the former days, all sorts of different ways, different prophets, you know, Ezekiel's got to lay down on one side for three years or something and walk around naked. I mean, we have all these weird ways that God is bringing his word. And, and now they've all been put down God's word for us into scripture. That doesn't, to me, and maybe it, it, uh, it's, it's different as you read it. Maybe I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too. To me, that doesn't mean I'm never going to receive um, leading of the Holy Spirit. Certainly they didn't intend that. It doesn't mean that God's never going to miraculously reveal something to someone for them, for that person that is in keeping with God's word, but isn't to be proclaimed to the whole church as, hey, I got stuff you should write in the flyleaf on the back of your Bible because it's equally valid. Um, thoughts? Um, with the whole prophets and stuff... Would he saying be like those things that 
falsehood would cease. The Are you talking about the perfect? Yeah, um, that's, I think, is the weakest proof text for any doctrine. Um, we, when we read, uh, where is that? Anybody know? Uh, that, that, that's very good. It's the love chapter. Love will not cease where there is word of prophecy, where there's miracles, these things, where there's knowledge even. These things will cease, but God's word remains forever, right? That's how we interpret that if we want to make a case for no more um, prophecy, no more. So, so for example, we, we had a different group here, uh, Nepali uh, group. We knew that they had a time of prophecy each week, right? Uh, and people would stand up and say, God has laid this on my heart, and I'm just sharing it with you. And they would try to follow 1 Corinthians 11 and weigh the prophecy. With what? With Scripture, of course. Um, and so is there anything that goes against or violates this basic paragraph about how God's Word is our final and infallible uh, rule for life and obedience and faith? I don't think so. Um, any more than the aspect of prophecy, which is forth-telling, uh, just expounding on God's word. If it's done well, and if it's received with a spirit not of, that guy up there holding the Bible is infallible, and I do everything he says and believe everything he says, but rather with a Berean spirit of, wait a minute, that sounds wonky. Why don't I talk to my brother and we'll open the Bible together and see if these things are so? That doesn't violate uh, the idea of sola scriptura. So I don't believe we're seeing, um, and, and there are certainly writings of early Baptists that would bear this out. I don't believe we're seeing a hard cessationism that says, I mean, I've, I've seen the ugly side of this, where if you even say, I was called to the ministry at 16, somebody comes out of the wings with, no, you weren't. What do you mean? God spoke to you? Well, if God spoke to you, you better write that down and add it to the Bible, blah, blah, blah. Um, well, what's the Holy Spirit even doing if not guiding and leading us? And when does it say in Scripture or in our foundational documents as Baptists that that guiding and leading never takes the form of uh, content, words? It always has. We already established that. So I think that the, the, the real safety rail we want to put up is it's not going to become authoritative for the, the whole church. The Bible's not a living, breathing document that's always being added to. The canon is closed. It's not the perfect which has come. <laughs> that's, again, from 1 Corinthians 13, that's a huge stretch. But the canon is closed, and yet God is still at work through the Holy Spirit. Uh, the United Church of Christ for a while, they're, maybe even still now, their whole deal was, their slogan was, God is still speaking. Um, and I know what they meant by it. And they meant, you know, forget just go looking at that dusty book. God's continually revealing who he, she, it is. And, um, you know, that's why we aren't bound by these old-fashioned ideas. That's not what I'm saying. But God is still speaking to us in his Holy Spirit and, and give, giving you the words to say, like he did to Stephen, uh, and giving you, uh, giving the words to God that you don't know to say. And, and he's, he's at work. And, and if we want to limit all that and say, no, 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 just, just the black and white and maybe red words in this particular book 
and nothing beyond that, God decided to become mute, that almost smacks to me of deism. Uh, because deism says there's a God who's powerful and he created the universe, then he stepped back and said, nope, never mind, I'm done. Well, this new deism would say, yeah, he, he was involved with mankind for a while, and then he was like, you know what? I, I don't feel like dealing with that anymore. I'm just going to write stuff down. Here you go, and I'm checked out. Like, like the parent who gets tired of reading the same story to the kid over and over again, so they record themselves doing it and say, here, just listen to it when you want. And the kid says in the old sermon illustration, but the tape recorder doesn't have a lap, right? I feel very sad and cold and alone. God hasn't left us sad and cold and alone. The Holy Spirit indwells you. And I don't see that as being at odds with the Baptist Catechism or the Baptist Confession, although there are certainly people who would say that it does. Uh, why don't you give us a closing thought, because we have to go dedicate a tree. Do we really want to um, tell the Holy Spirit what he can and cannot do? Well, they would say that he's told us what he will and will not do, but yeah, no, I'm with you. Um, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to limit the Holy Spirit, especially not when we see after Christ's resurrection and ascension and after the day of Pentecost today, uh, or no, next week, we'll see Philip what? Doing what? Casting out demons, doing miracles, doing all these things that ceased. Okay, oh, they ceased when the canon closed. When exactly was that? Well, we're going to talk next week about how this stuff came to be. Do you know when the first council that claimed to be an ecumenical, church-wide, authoritative council laid out what exactly the books of the Bible were? 3,300. 30, nope. Council of Trent in the 16th century. This is the Counter-Reformation again. And then we see the Protestants saying, oh, no, 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 you're, you're including things we don't want to... And so all of a sudden people start saying, this is the canon, this is the canon. Until then, so is that when prophecy ceased? I mean, come on. When, when, do, you, when do you draw the line? It, it becomes silly. It becomes us wanting to be very much in control rather than saying we serve a God who's alive and he's here and he's in us and he's at work. Um, I'll go with the latter myself. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this discussion about your holy word and how you are at work in our midst and how we have these, these words written down, the very word of God uh, that will give us uh, the, the means of, of knowing the gospel so we can believe the gospel, that, that give us the words to, to give an answer for the hope that we have within, a reason for our faith. And Lord, that inspire us and, and help us to ask the questions and, and dig deeper and, and find out of what we've been taught is the truth. Lord, we thank you that we have this, this Bible, these scriptures, which are the final authority uh, for all these things that have to do with, with life and faith and doctrine and obedience. Uh, and Lord, we pray that we would just hunger and thirst for them and want to dig deeper and deeper into them and know them and through them know you. And we pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.